0: From the campuses of east tennessee state university in johnson city tennessee and emory and henry college in emory virginia this is religion for life my name is john shuck iraq is now in the news especially with the advances of the islamic state and so i've decided to welcome back to the program thomas hill he's a professor at new york university he's a peace building practitioner and researcher with a decade of experience focusing on iraq in partnership with the university of Dahook. He is directing a two year project at the Center for Global Affairs entitled Building Capacity of Iraqi Academics in Peacebuilding Instruction and Practice. Since 2003, he's made well over 20 visits to Iraq and has overseen design, development, and implementation of a series of interrelated research and educational projects focused on the development of sustainable peace in Iraq. He regularly works. With the Iraqi Peace Foundation, a countrywide organization composed of university instructors, civil society activists, and other community leaders committed to strengthening a culture of peaceful conflict resolution throughout Iraq. A former journalist, his research interests include the role of universities as actors and sites for peace building, the importance of community centered approaches to civil society led peace building, and the use of conflict analysis and assessment as tools for integrating development and peace building. Now, Iraq is being besieged by the Islamic State, or ISIS, and Dr. Hill was in Iraq this summer. I've asked him to speak with me on Religion for Life, about his observations, and thoughts about the situation there. Welcome, Dr. Hill, to Religion for Life.
1: Oh, thanks very much, John. It's a pleasure to be on with you again.
0: Well, this is the third time uh, that you have been on Religion for Life, talking about your peace-building work in Iraq uh, with the University of Dahook. Can you uh, take a few moments and provide a recap of, of what you've been doing uh, over the past decade? I think you've made uh, over 20 visits now to Iraq.
1: Yeah, I think I, start, I stopped counting after we got past 20. I think it's probably near 30 now. 30. Um, so uh, my work with the University of Duhok has been really focused on helping to establish uh, the field of peace and conflict studies um, at the University of Duhok, and more broadly in the Kurdistan region and in all of Iraq. And I've been doing that by working with faculty members, by working with graduate students, and of course, by working with other members of the university administration. And we've done uh, different things like um had faculty members from NYU working in collaboration with faculty members at the University of Dahook to help develop curriculum in peace and conflict studies and in fact um, to to strengthen their master's program in peace and conflict resolution studies, which is the only program of its kind in all of Iraq. Um, We've done it by bringing students uh, back and forth from uh, Iraq to the US and then from the US to Iraq working so that they could work together on joint research projects. Uh, we've published one collection of research, and we're about to publish a second collection. Um, and then, uh, most recently, in this uh, in May, we actually ran an international conference together, where we brought together people from. Uh, about nine of the 18 governorates in Iraq, as well as nine foreign countries to present papers on uh, different subjects related to the intersection of peace building and education in Iraq. So it's been a a really broad based um, collaboration over these years.
0: We've talked in our previous conversations about the difference uh, between peacemaking and peacekeeping and peacebuilding. Can you run that through? Uh, one, run, run that bias again one more time. And what you and the speci- sure. the specificity of your work of peacebuilding.
1: Right. So, so peacebuilding, um, as I as I see it, as I teach about it, as I include it in my research, is really. Um, I think of it as more of an umbrella concept mm-hmm. that really includes all of the different activities that people might undertake in order to uh, strengthen uh, the peacefulness of different societies. So, um, you know, that can involve uh, relationship building, it could involve institution building, it could even involve uh, some sometimes economic development work in places where there's uh, vast inequality um, and lots of uh, you know, high levels of poverty. Um, <clears throat> peacekeeping is a little bit more specific in the sense that that's really an activity that's uh, intended to um, keep warring parties apart from each other. Um, it's very, you know, sort of specific. It tends mm-hmm. to be very military in nature, although there are also nonviolent peacekeepers. Um, and then peacemaking is more of a, the diplomatic side of it. It's, uh, you know, getting warring parties, disputing parties to come to agreement to end conflicts, to end violence, to uh, potentially agree to peace treaties or other arrangements.
0: And the last time we spoke uh, last summer, you had brought NYU students uh, to Iraq to work on various projects. And and we did that uh, broadcast with you in Iraq. And I spoke with one of the students about her work. And at that point, it seemed uh, like there was some real possibility for positive change in Iraq. And and, and with the program, what's the status of your program now?
1: You know, it's 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 funny. The the program um, has pretty much been consistent all the way through, even including the, um, the, the recent turn of events, uh, which has not been terribly positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's continued to expand. Actually, just yesterday, we uh, received word that we're going to get some continued uh, funding to expand one piece of the work that we're doing, which is uh, helping the University of Dahook De develop peace education workshops for youth uh, throughout their particular region. Um, and that's probably gonna continue for about another two years. So, so actually, um, you know, despite it all, the sort of the big picture of this is that the work continues to grow and expand and continue in a forward direction um the the difference is that uh you know because of the events of in particular of the last few months it's starting to look a little bit different because there are situations on the ground that we've needed to respond to and and incorporate into our work that we didn't anticipate one of which of course is the vast vast displacement of population uh, um now from the from the Mosul area up into Dahook, uh where hundreds of thousands of people have you know have fled um seeking safety and that has changed the dynamics in the community pretty significantly there are you know schools that are uh, quite overcrowded now being used even as places for people to uh, to live temporarily um, it's having an economic effect in terms of people seeking work who uh, are sort of, let's say, overcrowding the uh, the, current, the the current labor market um, and there are tensions developing between uh, the host community which on one hand has really been very welcoming to the people who've been forced out, but on the other hand is, I think, becoming a bit fatigued uh, with all of the, pop- the population displacement, which of course we have to remember has just been preceded by many, many Syrians coming into the area um, because of the conflict in that country. So uh, it's I think people are being welcoming, but at the same time, the, the tensions are, are you know, growing higher.
0: Well, we've certainly heard and seen news reports uh, in America of horrendous atrocities, beheadings, uh, reports of ethnic cleansing. What did you see? Uh, you talked a little bit right just now, but what did you see there this summer in Iraq?
1: Sure. So I was there most recently uh, the first week of August, and um, my timing was... Uh, uh. Uh, I don't know, fortunate or unfortunate, depending on how you look at it. I arrived the, the very day that uh, the Islamic State uh, militants took over the town of Sinjar, um, which was the Yazidi town um, that was, uh, you know, led to a, a mass exodus of the Yazidi from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, of course, did not go to Sinjar or anywhere close to it. But you know, I was probably about two hours driving from it in Erbil and Duhok. And what I did see was, um, you know, vast numbers of people who had been displaced from their homes. I had the opportunity to visit with a group of the Yazidi, uh, one night because a colleague of mine who is Yazidi was helping in the relief effort. Um, and he felt any visit from any international person would be welcomed just so people there knew that, uh, their story was getting out of their community. Mm -hmm. Um, so I spent one evening to go, uh, see uh some of the individuals there and the families for a couple of hours and it was absolutely heartbreaking i mean people who had walked for uh, the better part of 24 hours out of iraq into syria back into a a, over a different border in iraq um, had left with very very short notice left behind their homes in some cases had been separated from family members in other cases had had the women um, Family members taken from them, kidnapped. Uh, I had gentlemen telling me that women in their families had been kidnapped and taken to Syria uh, to serve as, uh, you know, essentially brides to the uh, some of the ISIS fighters. Um, this was all supposition at this point. There was very little that was actually known. Um, but the, you know, one gentleman who was a, a lawyer pulled me aside and or said he was a lawyer at least, and said, you know, he pulled me aside and he said, you know we don't need blankets. We don't need water. We don't need any of these things that the UN is going to bring us. He said, we need safety. Hmm. And, um, you know, of course it was a little unclear how that was going to happen. I mean, at that moment they didn't know if this, uh, you know, group that had forced them from their homes was going to continue to push further North and whether they were going to continue to need to be on the run um, during those few days, at least they were living in community centers in this town just outside of Dahook. Um, and then a few days later, I was in um, uh, Ankawa, which is the uh, Christian enclave that's just outside of Erbil, about two hours away from Duhok, And this is a, you know, a really uh, ancient community of both Assyrians, mainly Assyrians, but also some Chaldeans. And um, it was unbelievable how many people there were. It was, you know, it's normally a very sleepy um, suburb there are shops it's done well in recent years because the international community has come in and uh, bolstered some businesses but really there were just you know the population seemed like it was doubled the the church that's there um, the courtyard of the church was just full of families who had camped out had moved from uh, some of the uh, Christian villages that sit in this kind of no man's land between you know outside the Kurdistan region formally but that had been relied relying on uh, the Kurdish, Kurdish Peshmerga for support and security, and... Um, the,
0: the par- tell me what that, the Kurdish uh, the, so, the military, yeah, is that what that is? So,
1: yeah, so the Kurdish um, areas, they have their own, own um, you know, essentially military force that is um, at least legally integrated into the Iraqi army, but really operates quite separately, mm-hmm. um, and they are a militia, essentially, and they, um, you know, they provide the security within the Kurdistan region, within the three provinces that make up the Kurdistan region. They also have provided security in areas just outside the Kurdistan region, which are in dispute between Kurdistan and the federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, these are called the disputed territories, the disputed areas, and some of these areas, Sinjar, for example, is in that area. Uh, there are some Christian areas, one town called Karakush, another one named Alkush, um, that are in this disputed territory, in these disputed territories as well. So they had been. Uh, they are in kind of administrative limbo, but their, um, you know, their de facto situation is that they were depending on uh, the Kurdish militia to provide security. And when um, the Islamic State fighters uh, advanced on them this summer, the the Kurdish forces uh, either were unable or unwilling—it's a little unclear which—to uh, provide security, and they left, and they. So as a consequence, a lot of these people had to flee. Mm-hmm. And these were from Yazidi areas like Sinjar, um, Christian areas, like I said, Karakush, Alkush, um, really, really ancient Christian settlements. Um, even Sinjar has a, a Christian uh, history to it. Uh, one of the uh, purported tombs of daniel and you may know there are several mm-hmm. um is in it's uh it's outside of sinjar closer to Musul but um it was reported that the uh that the islamic state fighters destroyed it uh, um so you can understand that when these people were forced from their homes. They felt quite desperate, and they really saw that their, you know, some of their most sacred um, places were being destroyed. And uh, so, what I ended up seeing was lots and lots of families, both Yazidi and Christian, who had taken refuge. Um, for the most part, they were in. You know, the ones I saw were in pretty good shape. They, they, you know, were. They were getting food, they were getting water, they were, um, you know, they had safe places to rest their heads, although, you know, it was August, they were sleeping outside, uh, many of them, um, but, you know, the, the climate there uh, was appropriate for that. Uh, what, if, if this had happened at a different time of year, um, the situation, situation would have been much, much different.
0: If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Dr. Thomas Hills, professor at New York University in the Center for Global Affairs. He is a peace-building practitioner and researcher with a decade of experience, well, more than that now, focusing on Iraq, making uh, near close to 30 trips there. And speaking. And he was just there uh, this summer about a, month, about a month ago in August uh, talking about what he has seen. And you, you mentioned earlier of seeing people happy to see an international figure so they could get a message out. What, what, uh, what do you hear from them? What did you hear from them then about a message and, and now?
1: So many of the people that I spoke to, um, you know, in those days were ones whom I hadn't met before. They were displaced people who, um, you know, I was visiting with, uh, I remember at one point in, in the town I was, where so many of the Yazidi had come, um, A group of young men, boys, teenagers, I guess they were, had gathered around me and they were just kind of looking, trying to figure out, you know, what I was doing there. They knew I was foreign. Somebody must have told them I was American. Um, And one of the boys who spoke a little bit of English just finally looked at me and he said, can you tell us anything that will give us some hope? Hmm. And, you know, it was heartbreaking. The only thing I was able to tell them, you know, was that yeah. I'm, a, I'm a professor in the United States. I, I'm, I'm not able to resolve the situation. Um, and I don't have access to resources uh, that could resolve your situation, but I will share your story. Um, you know, it's one of the things that I'm doing even in this conversation. I, uh, I felt a responsibility to talk about it, to write about it, to let people know what I saw, um, because at least that would keep their... You know, their situation in in you know people's minds, uh, give them the chance that uh, that some people might help them out. Now, ultimately, of course, what they wanted uh, was some intervention from the United States. Um, to stop the advance of the Islamic State, which, which you know, came um, uh, at the order of President Obama in, in August, the same week that I was there. And people reacted quite joyously to this. I was sitting at dinner with a couple of friends and all of a sudden fireworks started going off and uh, people took their cars into the street, started honking horns. And um, it was a it was a to me a little bit of a mini Repeat of uh, what I'm told happened when the uh, American forces arrived in Iraq in 2003.
0: And we are recording this on September 10th, and President Obama is to make an address uh, later today. Well, so, what do you make of the U.S. response? Uh, is there really anything else that can be done besides airstrikes and military action against ISIS?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's been a complicated situ- situation for me personally because. I'm typically not in favor of any kind of military action in, in, in sort of the name of making or building peace. I typically find that uh, uh, those kinds of actions have quite the opposite effect. Um, mm-hmm. In this situation, though, given the crisis, I don't know what else – could have been done in order to, in particular, try to save those people who had left Sinjar, were up on Sinjar Mountain in you know, 120 degree temperatures. Um, so I think that the, the idea of airstrikes, limited airstrikes, um, at least in that crisis situation made sense. Um, now, frankly, I think what the objective is is to destroy mainly the military capabilities that the Islamic State has, much of which are, uh, you know, being provided by American equipment that was looted from Mosul when the Islamic mm-hmm. State took over that city in June. Um, so it's a it's a strange thing, but the Americans are actually. Uh, you know, going about trying to destroy American military equipment um, more than anything else, which will degrade the, you know, military capabilities of uh, the Islamic State fighters. Um, and in that sense, I think that the, the United States seems to have a responsibility to do that, because frankly, uh, however this happened, um, those those weapons did come from the United States originally. Uh, we provided them to Iraq. Um, whether we should have or shouldn't have is, is a you know, uh, up for debate, but certainly they should have been secured better than they were and they were not. Um, So now getting them out of the hands of people who are terrorizing parts of the Iraqi population uh, seems to me like a good idea.
0: Well, tell us a little bit, let's talk about ISIS for a second. Uh, What is ISIS? Is ISIS a surprise? Um, uh, What is this organization and, and and its goals and methods?
1: You know, a lot of people say that the Islamic State is something that they've um, never seen before, never seen anything like it. Uh, on the other hand, I think that there's an argument to be made that, uh, you know, it, it's it's an extremist group, um, like many other extremist groups, that has benefited from a perfect storm of circumstances. Um, there's still a relative. Small number of people, both operating in Iraq and Syria, who are, uh, it seems, who are who are, uh, um, you know, directly connected with the organization. Uh, what has happened, though, is they've been very effective at uh, appealing to uh, marginalized populations who Mm -hmm. have not been having their needs met or their voices heard by their governments. So in the Iraq case, uh, there have been protests for months and months, years even, um, mainly by uh, Sunni Muslim groups in predominantly Sunni areas. And the previous, the now previous Iraqi government um, under uh, Prime Minister al-Maliki uh, just didn't respond, respond in any way, ignored these protests. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people, you know, understandably felt completely uh, disenfranchised and uh, they felt that they were not receiving the the... You know, the services, the goods that they deserved as citizens of what is becoming a rather wealthy state. Um, And so when another alternative presented itself, people who said that they were going to represent them and somehow get back that which they had lost, uh, I I think it's not such a surprise that they found some support in these communities. Um, You know, frankly, I I do think that now many, many people who supported them at the outset, some of the tribal leaders and others, are having serious second thoughts because I don't think they fully understood the extreme intentions uh, of the leaders of the Islamic State. Um, And consequently, the good news here is that I think the the effort to dislodge them um, is not going to uh, it's actually not going to be so, so difficult uh, despite the extreme uh, actions and tactics that they're, that they're using to terrorize. They're still a relatively small group of people. um, And the only way they can succeed is if lots and lots of people in communities where they've entered uh, will continue to support them and, Look, by and large, Iraq is not an extreme society. Mm-hmm. It's a very moderate society. Um, and uh, people are looking for the same things that many people are looking for all over the world. Access to education, access to good jobs, um, you know, chance to have a, a, a peaceful, stable life, life for their families. Um, ISIS doesn't really have the opportunity to promise that. The Iraqi, The Iraqi state does. And now that a new government is coming in uh, into power, um, you know, we can only hope that the lessons, the mistakes uh, that were made uh, by the previous government are, are going to be rectified by the new government and, um, and they will uh, you know, re-include uh, these elements, these uh, communities that had felt so disenfranchised. And I think the support for the Islamic State, if that happens, will, will melt away very, very quickly.
0: Uh, my guest, uh, Dr. Thomas Hill, professor at New York University. Uh, you've been working at, uh, with two universities, NYU and the University of Da Hook, in developing programs for building peace, a long, long-term project. Uh, and my first reaction to all of this is, gosh, has this been unwound? Um, or as you've just been speaking, maybe this this ISIS is, is really a temporary and it's something that can be defeated. Um, and so I'm wondering, is there a sense, even if in a small degree, that this work toward peace building has been constructive, uh, even amidst this latest crisis?
1: Yeah, you know, you, you you have to sometimes in this work, I think, suspend your disbelief and um, and and also be willing to um, to really look at a situation and try it, try to see it a bit differently from. Um, the way most people are seeing it. Mm. Uh, I have many, many friends in Iraq who are incredibly discouraged at the moment. Um, some of my closest colleagues have been telling me that, you know, this is it. Now they, they, they don't necessarily have hope. Um, some people who were really committed to staying and working even now are thinking that it's time for them to explore uh, ways for them to move their families outside of Iraq. Um, a colleague of mine wrote to me just the other night and said, you know, we, our eyes have seen so many things that it's very difficult for our eyes to see anything up, you know, in, in an optimistic way now. Um, and and I, I appreciate that. Uh, I also think, you know, I have the benefit of being an outsider, first of all, one who has the freedom to come and go, which is a great luxury, um, mm-hmm. and also is one that you know can get some gain some perspective on the situation and um and my sense is that uh in some ways this moment in all of its horror uh for so many people in iraq is also an opportunity Uh, um, it's it happened at a moment when there was a government transition going on which is a very very great bit of fortune, I think, for the Iraqi people, because if there had not been the specter of a change in government right now, um, I'm not sure what would have happened. But now there is a new government coming in. There's a new president. There's a new prime minister. uh, There will be a new cabinet. um, And, you know, all the early signs are at least that these leaders understand they need to be far more inclusive uh, than the previous uh, government was. Now, if they go ahead and do that, um, it's obviously going to take some time to restore people's faith. Um, But if they do go ahead and do that, I think they have a chance to begin getting things on the right track. Look, I had one friend who said to me, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not happy that this happened, but in some ways iraq needed for this to happen because we were not going to get a change from the previous prime minister unless something really severe happened he wasn't going to relinquish power and um, and he wasn't interested in in building a coalition and and having a you know having a really diverse um you know government. Uh so hopefully these new leaders who are coming in will be interested in that. And you know, in a very perverse sort of way, uh they can thank the Islamic State for providing this opportunity.
0: We just have about a minute left. Uh Tom, what what do you hope the international community can do and, and particularly uh the people of the United States?
1: You know, I hope people do not lose hope and I hope people do not overgeneralize this situation, they need to remember that the vast, vast majority of the Iraqi people are you know, against the Islamic State, mm-hmm. and really would like to see an inclusive government. And they they would like to have good relationships with Americans and other internationals. Um, they'd like to be able to, you know, send their children to universities in the United States, and they'd like to have people from the United States come to Iraq and uh, visit and do business, and you know, do the types of things that. America Americans do with people from so many other countries, um, and so I hope that uh, that is not lost in the fog of all that's happened over the
0: last uh, over the last few months. And just a final question: Do you uh, plan on continuing your program with the University of Duhok and making a return trip?
1: Yeah, we're uh, we're definitely continuing with the University of Um I'm uh, you know looking forward to uh, this. Peace education program that we're helping them put into place uh, that'll be for the next one or two years, working with youth from the area, helping them understand better um, nonviolent approaches to the conflicts they face in their communities. And um, I'm very likely going back for some time in October.
0: Tom Hill, professor at NYU, the Center for Global Affairs, uh, with me today on Religion for Life. Thank you, Tom, for your perspective and for your good work.
1: Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Hear us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well.